Well, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Excuse me. We've um, spent two weeks preparing for our Advent sermon series. This Advent, we'll be looking at the seven letters to the seven churches uh, in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. And this morning, we've read the first two letters. Uh, Advent uh, means coming. And at Advent, we focus on the coming of Christ. Uh, Either his first coming, some 2,000 years ago or so, or his second coming, which remains in the future, or sometimes both. The focus of these seven letters is that Jesus is coming soon. And as already explained, that term means that it is the very next thing that God will do. Uh, No intermediary stages. Theologically, what goes up must come down. Jesus is coming back. Perhaps in our lifetimes, perhaps not for many generations to come. We don't know. However, we are to be as prepared for Christ's immediate return as every other generation of Christians before us. Only those who are ready for Christ's imminent return are ready for his delay. Uh, We are living on the cliff edge of eternity. Living on the cliff edge of eternity. So then when we're looking at the seven letters, each letter is sent to a different church in an area that today we know as Western Turkey. But in the days of the Roman Empire, this same area was known as the province of Asia. Uh, The letters are formulaic. Uh, That that is, they've got a bit of a rough formula, a a recipe with nine ingredients, nine parts. The seven letters all differ from this formula slightly in one way or another, but here's the basic outline. Firstly, each letter begins with John being instructed to write to the angel of the church in whatever city. Now, in both the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament, the word translated angel, at its most basic level, simply means messenger. But it's not obvious as to what exactly that means here, given that the content of each letter is clearly intended for the whole congregation, for everybody um, at each church. Um, Perhaps the idea is that each church is being addressed as a corporate entity, as, as a single body as a unity. That's the first thing. Secondly, after saying to whom the the letter was sent, each letter continues by saying from whom the letter was sent. These are the words of him. Then, third, there is a description of Jesus, a description that has already, by and large, appeared in chapter 1. I'm not going to say much about these descriptions because we've looked at them closely already when we looked at chapter 1 in the first two sermons of this series. And then the fourth ingredient is an I know statement. Jesus knows everything that is happening in each of these churches. And then fifth, usually there is a yet I have this against you statement. A negative judgment of a way or several ways in which that church is failing. Six, that's followed by one or more imperatives, commands, admonitions, things that Jesus expects everybody in that church to obey. 
7, there is uh, frequently a threat of the judgment that will follow if the commands are not obeyed, followed by 8, an incentive to obey, a statement of the reward that will come to those who obey, who overcome, who conquer what they will receive. Uh, The language here uh, is always war language. Conquering, overcoming, being victorious. The Christian life is depicted as, in one sense, a constant battle. But a constant battle in which the war has actually already been won. Because Jesus Christ is the victor. Uh, The the war is won. uh, And yet we're engaged in battles. The ninth element is the final one. Each letter ends with a final call. Um, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in order to present this verse in a gender-neutral way, let him has been translated as let them. And I don't have a problem with that. I'm in favor of gender-inclusive translations in general, but... It's um, important to note that actually this is an invitation to an individual. Um, It's singular, not plural. Um, uh, This is an invitation to you and to me. And uh, then the verb, um, the Spirit says, uh, that's that's a present continuous, a present imperfect. It's, it's, It's an ongoing sense of the present tense. A literal translation, therefore, might be, Whoever has ears, let him or let her hear what the Spirit is saying, continues to say, now to the churches. What we can deduce then is that all of the seven churches were to read all of the letters. That's what was happening here. Uh, these letters, each one's addressed to a specific church, but all of the churches are reading every letter. And what may have been happening, perhaps secretly or in a clandestine fashion, say in the church in Thyatira, for example, suddenly it's laid bare before all the other six churches in the first instance. And then in the second instance, what was happening in that church is laid bare before all Christians across all time. As, as we read the document we know as the book of Revelation. Uh, so then, basically, uh, when it comes to Jesus, if you're looking for confidentiality, you've come to the wrong shop. And the, the point, the whole point of these letters is not to ask which one of these letters best fits our context now, which one is relevant to us today, but rather to ask, what is the Holy Spirit saying to me personally and to us corporately now through each and every one of these letters? What's Jesus saying to us today through the Holy Spirit? So let's do that. Um, Let's pray. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Father, As we meditate upon the letters to the church in Ephesus and the church in Smyrna, please speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Dear Lord Jesus, please, uh, we are deaf, except that you open our ears. Um, Dear Jesus, please give us ears that hear. 
Please forgive us for all of our sins and turning away and choosing to be deaf. Please give us ears that hear and speak to us as we read your word by your Holy Spirit. To the glory of God and in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, uh, Christ's words to the church in Ephesus paint us a picture of a church that is working hard to maintain doctrinal purity. They are challenging and rejecting the ministry of false teachers. Some of these teachers were calling themselves apostles, but they weren't apostles. Uh, The New Testament, in actual fact, is full of references to false teachers, false prophets, false apostles, people who, in essence wanted to persuade people to believe in a slightly different or very different version of the Christian gospel. Um, indeed, actually guarding, uh, guarding a church against false teaching is the primary, it's the primary duty of the eldership of any church. Um, one of uh, the many promises that I made on the day of my ordination Uh, to the priesthood, one of the many promises I made was this one. The archbishop asked me, will you be ready, both in your public and private ministry, to oppose and set aside teaching that is contrary to God's word? To which I responded, I will by God's grace. The threat of false teaching is a constant threat. Paul, speaking to the elders of this very church, the church in Ephesus, four or five decades earlier, warned them. He said, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Um, How will they shepherd? I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in amongst you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. Men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And that speech can be found in Acts chapter 20 if you'd like to look at the whole thing. But um, I, guess, I guess they took Paul at, at his word and this conscientiousness, we see it four or five decades later, this conscientiousness with respect to false teaching, it formed in them a hatred, uh, not just a willingness to to test false apostles, but a hatred for the practices of the the Nicolaitans. We don't know what these practices were. Um, I guess that means we don't need to know. But we can see it clearly. The Ephesian church hated heterodoxy and heteropraxy, that is, false teachings and false practices. And they, as a church, were a bastion of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And we should note that Jesus praises them for their hard work and perseverance. Challenging false teaching is very difficult work. It usually involves people who don't like confrontation, having to confront people, who are often quite immune to confrontation or indeed get their jollies from it. It involves correction, rebuke, censorship, and doing and saying things that potentially end friendships and cause people to leave churches. 
all things that feel profoundly uncomfortable and that in one sense involve pastors doing things that are the opposite of their natural reflex, which is to include rather than exclude, to gather rather than to divide. It's not nice work. Jesus praises them for doing it. But there is a word of judgment. Verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Uh, it's important to notice that these two words, these words also are ambiguous. We don't know exactly what they mean. We can assume, it's a safe assumption, that the Christians in Ephesus knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. But we don't. We, we don't know what they were doing at first, except occasionally having a bonfire of uh, uh, occult scrolls worth 50,000 drachmas. Uh, we hear about that. But we don't know what they were doing at first. Um, we can speculate we continue to see and know that when people come to faith in Jesus Christ, they're often full of joy in, in the infatuation stage of their love affair with God. And they demonstrate this with an extraordinary passion for praise, worship, and prayer, for evangelism and reaching out to others with the good news, uh, for generously helping the poor and sacrificial giving and making useful changes in the world. That's the kind of thing that new Christians are passionate about. Or to put this in the way that John himself would put it, being a Christian means experiencing the love of God in Christ Jesus and showing that same love to others so that the world knows that there is hope for sinners in the name of Jesus Christ. But, but somehow in Ephesus and uh, not uncommonly elsewhere, through the centuries, somehow hardships, persecutions, lack of rest, desires for other things, the frustrations and distractions of this world, they tend to make us jaded, dry, bitter, uh, cynical, uh, compassion fatigued. Either uh, we stop rejoicing in the love of God or stop being quite so loving to others or both. Um, either way, the equation is broken and we've stopped being a gospel church. A church that is passionate for doctrinal purity yet has stopped being loving to others is no longer a gospel church. So Jesus continues, If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The um, city of Ephesus was world famous for this glorious temple it had um, a, a temple to the Greek goddess Artemis or Diana. But next to this glorious temple was a sacred tree. And as sacred space in Greco-Roman thought, in ancient thinking, that made the whole city of Ephesus 
a sanctuary, a place you could run to, a place actually where murderers, robbers, thieves and criminals could run to in order to be immune from prosecution. And this gave the city of Ephesus a bad reputation for being, as Obi-Wan Kenobi may have put it, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. The church, in a significant but subtly different way, it's also, likewise, the church is also to be a place of sanctuary, a place to which sinners can run, a place to run to in hope of forgiveness and sanctuary. But not if they're going to remain unrepentant. When it comes to the kingdom of God, the unrepentant are on the outside. And the tree that Christ offers is the cross. Eternal life is found there. We are invited to come as we are. But we're not invited to stay as we are. Let's take a few moments to pray about this. Um, There are some pads and some pencils. We're going to take a few moments just to pray silently. Uh, If um, the Lord gives you something that you'd like to write down and stick in your pocket and take home, then please avail yourself of the pencils and pads. But let's pray. Uh, Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Where have I forsaken the love I had at first? Where have we as a church forsaken the love we had at first? How might we do the things we did at first? Let's maybe now um, consider the letter to Smyrna. Um, If you just want to take a few more moments or two just to get any remaining points down. The letter to Smyrna is the shortest of the seven letters. Um, There is no negative judgment in this letter. The command is simply to continue to be faithful, to keep on trusting Jesus and to keep on being willing to confess Jesus Christ and him crucified whenever they were required to answer for their beliefs. Um, We notice that for this church, the problem is not Roman persecution. It's actually Jewish persecution. We know from the book of Acts that Jewish persecution of the early church was intense and prolonged. And we know, of course, that Paul himself was a persecutor until his conversion. Well, 50 years after Paul himself had come through this land, evangelizing Uh, Jew and Gentile, beginning in the synagogues, then moving to the marketplaces. In that 50 years, the situation had changed. The Romans had razed Jerusalem to the ground, completely destroying that city and completely destroying the temple. The Jews were still exempt from having to worship the Roman emperor as a god, But now, the money that they'd once given each year as a temple tax had to be given by Roman law to the temple of the Roman god Jupiter in Rome. Uh, 
Um, this was, as you can imagine, an exceedingly bitter pill to have to swallow, an exceedingly great humiliation. And this bitterness seems to have only intensified Jewish hatred of the followers of the way. And we know that this persecution involved exclusion from synagogue, slander, abusive language, confiscation of property, loss of income, being fired, uh, threats of violence and actual violence, imprisonment, floggings, and not uncommonly, murder. And in many places, Jewish uh, people, Jewish communities, turned informant, um, uh, sniffing out um, where Christians might be and dobbing them in to the Roman authorities, this group uh, that was, was not exempt, yet would not worship Caesar as a god. Now, for us, is living in the 21st century in our world, we are extremely sensitive to anything that um, smacks of anti-Semitism, um, smacks of prejudice uh, um, against Jews. Um, Jesus' words in verse 9 are worth uh, explaining. In verse 9, Jesus says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, this is not anti-Semitism. Uh, Jesus is a Jew, and so is John. Jesus is, of course, though, giving us the heavenly perspective, God's point of view. Now, whilst people who identify themselves as uh, ethnically or culturally Jewish are free to do so, and whenever they do so, uh, that is to be uh, respected, um, and uh, that is a freedom we are to delight in. Uh, by the same token, spiritually, of course, you cannot claim to be Jewish if you do not believe in Jesus. Because a real Jew, of course, spiritually, is a child of Abraham. And a child of Abraham is somebody, by definition, who puts their faith in Abraham's Lord, whether or not they are bi biologically descended from Abraham. That's what, biblically, a child of Abraham is. Abraham knew his Lord personally. He saw him and met him on a number of occasions. Sometime later, Abraham's Lord took on flesh and dwelt as one of us. In fulfillment of all the prophecies, he was rejected, handed over to the Gentiles, and killed. And in fulfillment of Scripture, he rose on the third day. In his name, forgiveness of sins is preached to the ends of the earth. He is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the light to the Gentiles. Given then that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and all the prophets met Jesus and believed in him, no one can claim to be Jewish if they reject Jesus. To, and, of course, to persecute Christians of either Jewish or Gentile background, to, to slander them, to divide them, to hurt them, that is obviously the work of Satan. Christ's words here, therefore, aren't anti-Semitic. They're not defamatory. They're not derogatory. They are simply explanatory. They are reality. So then we can see how it is at, at Smyrna. The Christians there are suffering greatly. Faith in Jesus Christ has led to rejection and deprivations. Yet, Jesus tells them, they are rich. 
And we must take that very, very seriously. If Jesus says that they are rich, then they are very rich. That's what they are. But the suffering is only going to get worse. There'll be a premeditated campaign against them. Some of them will go to jail. Some of them may be threatened with death. Some of them might be killed. It's a little ambiguous. What's not ambiguous is that they are not to fear what lies ahead. And that they must remain faithful, even to the point of death, just as Jesus himself did. These are, after all, the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. Because we see the suffering, it will be bounded, it will be limited, it's not forever. It's only a short time. So how how does this speak to you today? Most of us suffer rejection and deprivations as a result, as an indirect result or as a direct result of following Jesus from time to time. Most of us have known rejection, hostility or slander directly at some point because we are Christians. Most of us also have or continue to know difficulty or hardship as an indirect result of following Jesus. For, for example, I know of plenty of Christians who've lost their jobs essentially because they spoke the truth in their workplace and or they refused to lie. Or those who have followed Christ's call to places that other people wouldn't go to or have said yes to doing jobs that other people won't do or befriended people that others dislike or like to dislike. And they've suffered the price for that. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Being faithful means continuing to trust Jesus, continuing to own his name, and continuing to live the cross. Jesus, who could have overcome his enemies but didn't, Submitted to unjust evil in order to sacrifice, sorry, in order to suffer sacrificially for his enemies. That's how Paul, you, and I have been forgiven by the cross. The Christians of Smyrna must resist the temptation, therefore. Part of being a Christian is to resist the temptation to fight back, to answer back, to defend their own cause or to overpower their enemies in any way at all. They are simply to endure. That's what will make them victorious. That's what will allow them to participate in the victory of God, because Jesus is the victor. Let's uh, take a few moments to chew this over. How does this speak to you? Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening.